You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Uh, Nick Deere is here. Nick, where are you? Nick Deere is here. Sarah Satterley is here. Jen Lake here, Spectral here. Brian Gamble brought his family. There are so many people who made arrangements to be here today. Thank you for your, your kindness. Um, I'll remember it the rest of my life. Um, the, the thing that you all commented on the most was uh, my wardrobe when you came in. and um, <laughs> I thought, golly gee, you deserve at least one day where it could, what it could have been like to have a real pastor. Uh, and, and perhaps all that energy can translate into the search committee putting something in the job description about a dress code. We will wait and see. Um, I, I have a lot, I apologize. Admonishing and honoring people is my favorite thing to do, and that's a lot of what this is. So let me get through it as fast as I can and make as much eye contact as I can, but of course I'm holding all of my own emotional self within my stifled three self. Um, Annie Dillard said, I think that the dying pray at last, not please, but thank you. As a, a guest, thanks the host at the door, and of course I'm not dying. Um, but what I did discover very early on in my own uh, journey as a pastor is that sometimes change can feel a little bit like a death. And so uh, while I, I, um, I do realize that uh, there's a dramatic difference, I, I'm so grateful to be here today and say thank you in the way that one only gets to retrospectively. On August 5th, 2007, I was a 26-year-old six, uh, snotty seminary graduate with ambition, theological pretension, and a stack of applications ready to be sent out to churches over the northern Midwest that I had no business applying to. And um, between the two of us, uh, Lindsay and I had one child, two part-time jobs, and the kind of naivety that makes life blissful, but also both of us very dumb. And on that August 5th, I was completing one of the last tasks of my 12-credit internship here at UBC that summer before I graduated. I preached for about the fourth time in my life, uh, from Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool, as it's sometimes called, but otherwise called the parable of two brothers, a title I prefer for its potent theological suggestion. Mind you, were just three chapters from the prodigal son, and if ever there was an Easter egg before Easter, that has to be it. So I preached that sermon, I think, as well as I could have. Um, I, it was a, I was a rookie, as preachers go, pretty flawless, had substantial content. I counted the day as a win. Uh, at this point, as a community, we were almost two years removed from the loss of our beloved teaching pastor, Kyle Lake, and while our scars had in some sense begun to heal, uh, they were still fresh, not just because Kyle had died, but the way he had died. And any decision that was made after Kyle's death, especially decisions that had proximity to him, I think had a kind of magnitude to it. And so even though I was ambitious, and um, that Sunday morning I was measured in what I permitted my heart to dream about because, of course, I wanted to preach at UBC. But so did the other dozen or two dozen seminary students who were here at any given time. And so um, the desire for the job did not just feel fraught given uh, Kyle's impact, but it felt a bit selfish given the company. And still, I dreamed that dream, even if only quietly in my heart. Uh, that afternoon, UBC had a clean day um, because at this time our church population was made up of, I don't know, 600 college students and 13 adults. And um, <laughs> our budget could best be described as vagabond, a moving target without a real home. 
So I, I cleaned and I was dreaming of my last moments with this community that I had loved and had shepherded me for three years, ready to take my talents north wherever we would go. In the middle of scrubbing a floor that, I kid you not, would, would become my office, I got a phone call from an unidentified number. And mind you, this was before um, data breaches routinely sold your, your data to, to you know, marketers. And so uh, an unidentified number was sort of a, a tantalizing proposition. Uh, it was either Publishers Clearinghouse, the wrong number, or maybe Oprah. So I, uh, I answered. And on the other end was David Crowder. And though I'd worshiped here for three years and I had served on the leadership team for a year, I would describe my relationship with Dave at the time at best as, as um, acquaintances. Uh, Dave never called me, didn't know Dave had my number, but as an Enneagram three, wasn't really surprised either. Um, <laughs> you gotta remember this was pre-Chip and Joe, the biggest thing after David Koresh, but before Robert Griffin in Waco was Crowder. And now he was calling me. And uh, Dave very graciously complimented me on the sermon. We did some small talk, that's my wheelhouse, and then we hung up. Two weeks later, I was in an office with Ben Dudley, John Mark Seelig, and Crowder, and they asked us if we would consider staying in Waco and if I would stick around to be the teaching pastor. And, um, and if one can have a sense of what it is like to win the lottery without actually winning it, surely it wasn't me in that moment. Uh, this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I want to paint pictures of my gratitude. A few days later, we hosted our best friends, who at the time were Scott and Stephanie Shelton and Chris and Jesse Fillingham. And I, uh, word was not out yet. It was still private information. I poured each of us one-sixth of a PBR because that's what I could afford, and that's what the hipsters were drinking. And uh, I told them through a quivering voice and tears in my eyes that I had been offered the job as UBC's teaching pastor, and they cried with me. Uh, the other image I, I found in a scrapbook this week uh, that Lindsay created. Um, now... 15 years later, it is an Ebenezer in our lives. Uh, the three of us, me, Roy, and Lindsay, went to Olive Garden to celebrate my new job. This was a real sign of our new aristocratic living. We were going to the Olive Garden. <laughs> um, and she wrote, we went to eat at the Olive Garden to celebrate Daddy's new job at UBC. After graduating from Truett, we were looking for jobs all over the Midwest and Texas. We had no idea where we might end up. We were excited and scared. I remember the scared part more clearly. After Daddy's summer internship at UBC, he was asked to stay in their teaching pastor we were so thankful and excited, and I can tell you 15 years later, we have remained so thankful and so excited. Um, not long after I had started at UBC, I was texting Ben Dudley, our community pastor. This is like the first year you could do that at Max. And um, Ben was so gracious. He's the one who sheltered me, who, who loved me, who protected me when I first began. And I asked him a question that I could not understand the origin within me at the time. I asked him if he ever contemplated the moment when he would leave UBC. And there we pondered together the possibility and the circumstances that might bring about this kind of change in our lives. And now 15 years later, I know exactly why that whimsical question was at the forefront of my mind, even as it began the journey. And that is this, because I understood from the get-go was that who would ever want something more than this? Who gets the last chapter of their fairy tale before they finish the first one? Who gets the winning lottery ticket the first time that they purchase it? And the answer to that me is me, I did. And what does one do with a life in which they were given everything that they ever wanted and more than they deserve? Well, I'll tell you what I did. I baptized your children. I did your weddings. I took the invitation to help fight for your marriages. I sat in the brokenness of divorce and depression and death. I did your funerals. I celebrated your graduations. And eventually, I developed some calluses on my feet because the only place I could walk around in your lives required that I take off my shoes because I was always on holy ground. And since I have now alluded to Moses' story, let's talk about his story. Can somebody get me a water bottle? Anybody? Oh, there we go. Ben, you got a full one unopened? 
Appreciate you. Ben. <laughs> Moses. He, at the end of his story, is a leader who is on the proximity of the promised land, but not quite there. And uh, that is for everyone who has ever had the privilege of doing the Lord's work in an explicit fashion like I have is just right. And if you carry this mantle and you wear this work, suddenly the seemingly tragic ending of that story makes perfect sense to you because none of us ever arrive in the promised land. That is a telos that belongs to Jesus alone. We bear witness to what God does, flirting with the possibility of getting there. But UBC is only as good as it is the day after I'm gone. And I can tell you she is great. Um, I will tell you about one of those most salient moments in my 15-year journey. Sometime in early 2011, we had a town hall meeting on a Sunday evening. Uh, we had a large announcement. David Crowder, one of the founding pastors of this church and, and a person of international and national presence, uh, told me that he was leaving. And I was left to pick up the pieces and make sense of his departure and the future of this church that featured, again, 600 doting college students and their donating parents. Thank you, we survived because of you. Uh, but the question is, would we? Could we survive without Dave? No one asked that, asked that question explicitly, but, but uh, it was there. And for a church that was functionally a parachurch ministry at the time, that, that was what we all secretly had wondered. And, um, and I remember starting that meeting and we started by, I read the Beatitudes, and, and, and then I had Toph come up and read the Crowder's letter, because God bless Toph, I always made him deliver the crappiest news. Um, and then I proceeded to leave and lead and navigate a meeting in which we lingered on the precipice of the promised land without our leader. And holy shnikes, I will never forget this moment. Lisa Monroe, where are you, Lisa? Lisa's right there. Lisa, you were sitting right back here. Uh, Lisa Monroe with the force and confidence of Darth Vader, stood up glaring at the gates of hell, and she said with fury that is unmatched, this is not David Crowder's church, this is not Josh Carney's church, this is God's church, and it will be just fine. And my word to you today is that this is going to be just fine. And let me tell you, when Lisa was done, a couple of Baptists turned to be Pentecostals in that moment. Uh, <laughs> that's just right. Every leader who's good at what they do gets to the promise, uh, doesn't get to the promised land. No leader actually enters it. They die somewhere. No one knows because in the Christian tradition, the success of the church has never been about a pastor or leader. It has always been about who Jesus is. But Moses, uh, I wanted to point out something to you about his story. In Exodus 17, 12, Amalek, an enemy of Israel, is looking for a fight. Amalek intends to wage war with Israel. Now, uh, before I adopt this, this metaphor, I'll ask that you'll be mindful of my sermon from last week in which I exhaustively demonstrated the thoroughgoing message of Jesus' nonviolence, even in regards to Ukraine and Russia. That is to say, I hope you place this metaphor in its proper context, but the story is this. Moses tells Joshua to go out and fight Amalek and his army. And uh, what Moses is going to do is stand up on a hill with the staff of God in hand and, and keep it raised. And every time it's raised above Moses' head, Israel begins to win the war. And when Moses' arms grow tired and he lowers them, they begin to lose the war. Um, and let me now tell you a secret, what every pastor who's worth his or her salt has also discovered. Those of us who have learned, learned to hold the purposes of God above ourselves have found that church has worked. And those of us who have put the purposes of God below us, we watch churches fail. And so now what I'd like to do is say thank you to a few people 
who have held up my arms these 15 years. And of course, the danger is doing this is once you start, where do you stop? So let's just say this, I'll enter the Holy of Holies and what follows, I offer a litany of those who have held up my arms. Kieran Cressy. I mean, uh, fair warning, there's a lot of these, so if you're gonna clap every time. Uh, let me tell you a secret. The reason 30 to 40-something-year-old parents go to church is because they are scared expletive about their children. Uh, having not known what to do with their own deconstruction, they panic and commit to a religious tradition like UBC with a compassionate and loving youth pastor who holds with all t- the tenderness of sexual identity, Dungeons & Dragons, and adolescent confusion like a true Gen Zer could. I am immensely grateful to trust my own children to you into the formula of love and compassion that you have put together. Did you hear me? Risa Miller. Where's Risa? There are thousands of ways to pay you a compliment, but perhaps this is the most salient. Uh, had you not been here, I would have given up a year and a half ago. Uh, you have matched my enthusiasm. You have exceeded my expectations. You are worth so much more than we ever did or could pay you. The day when I take the job as your office manager will be the joy of my life, but it certainly will not be a surprise. <laughs> you are tremendous, and UBC is lucky to have had you. Did you hear me? Taylor Post. That one's rolling the dice. Okay, sometimes Taylor's out helping kids. Uh, what does it say about me that all these years, my favorite thing has been the last two of them, has been a ridiculous, superfluous podcast that, what, 38 people have listened to? Uh, well, I'm going to tell you what it means. It means that you are a tremendous communicator. It means that you are fun. It means that you have, the most, have been the most fearless about calling out my BS. It means that you have been my teacher. It means that you have been generous and trustworthy with my soul and thought process. It means that you have a calling on your life and that you had better pay attention to that and work on it. Did you hear me? Jamie McGregor. If God didn't send me the most tantalizing, beautiful complexities in the universe in you, uh, you are the most theologically astute and sophisticated songwriter I've ever worked with. And if you've been paying attention to the sermon, that's a Grammy-nominated compliment. Uh, If I can simplify that statement, it's one I think everyone discovered a few weeks ago when you preach, you're an even better theologian than you are uh, a musician. And I thought about that statement long and hard before I wrote it. But that's what makes you great at what you do. And Jamie, uh, lest everyone not have had the same access to your tenderness that I have these last seven years, let me tell you about this. You're the only one who at the end of every one of our one-on-ones would ask me how I was doing. And I have been partially healed every time that you have asked me. So thank you. Did you hear me? Tov, isn't it? I've thought about this opening anecdote a thousand times, gauging its wisdom in the presence of a post-evangelical deconstructionist congregation who seem hyperallergic to that which is, runs the risk of being trite, yes, yet I trust this will abide. Um, in 2010, when we were discerning among the 50-plus applicants we had for community pastor, um, I was praying in the shower, and I remember exactly where I was, and, and, um, and, and I heard what I will submit in all possible humility of being wrong, the voice of God say, hire Tov. And so I have spent the last 11 years 
trying to make sense of this potentially elusive and misinterpreted read in God's providence. And he, here's what I can tell you. Uh, you are the one person who in my most desperate hour, I could without qualification ask to lay hands on me and pray for me. You have been the one individual who I know I could ask and love anybody in this community without qualification in the most sincere way possible. And you have been someone who has taken the call of discipleship more sincerely and humbly than I could have asked for. I love you, Toph. Did you hear me? Uh, my sister and my mother. At some point in my pastoral journey, I reread, I rediscovered Luke 6, 4, which says, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor or respect, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. Um, <laughs> that, of course, is a humorous way for me to name uh, the complexities that have existed with me trying to pastor my mother and my sister, your brother-in-law who routinely embarrasses you with his jump shot and your nephew who embarrasses you on the basketball court and the frisbee field. Um, I guess what I mean to say is that it did not take long before I realized despite the fact that um, you were here, I couldn't really be your pastor. Pastor would always come into competition with brother and son and the complexity of human relationship. That, of course, as it should be, just right. Uh, and still, you have been here. And since the death of my father, your father, your husband, has been a source of great strength to me. It has been a proclamation that indeed water is thicker than blood. Despite the fact that we share blood, the allegiance of baptism ran even thicker within us, even if we were unable to make sense of that commitment. Into my niece, Annabeth, I never once made you a sermon illustration, so just know that I honored your boundaries. Craig Nash. There you are. Um, I thought about this a lot, what to say, what to not say. Uh, Craig, one time we had a conversation, and I tried to remember the context of the gist, but it was, you said it, if somebody wants 10 years of community, they ought to show up for 10 years. If they want 15, 15, et cetera, you do the algebra. And um, uh, let me interrupt the story to show you all a picture. This is Craig. Me, uh, Britt Duke, Britt's here today, Britt, I love you, Johnny Potter, who left and never came back, and, uh, you know, we would, we would get drinks every week for three years, I think, at what, Buzzard Billy's, what did it used to be? It was god-awful, the hush puppies were free, and the beer was a dollar, so we went there for hours, and, yeah, Doc's Riverfront, and drank and ate way more than me, but that is where I learned my ecclesiology with this group, especially in regards to UBC, and, um, and what happened? I was hired, we hired Craig. Then Crowder left, the budget got tight, and I moved through a process to eliminate a full-time position, and it was Craig's, who, despite our relational tensions, at the time was one of my best friends. And why tell that story on this day? Two reasons. One, no one has done more to press me to tell the truth than you have, at all expense. And that has served me very well. And also... Because though it was one of the most excruciating things I did in my 15 years, it was also one of the most redemptive. A lot of people can tell you about the complex contours of the gospel, but few have dared to live in it with me. And to find 10 to 20 to 40 years of community, you're right, you have to show up for that. And as I enter the second half of life and have made these square discoveries about myself, include I really do struggle to believe that people love me just as I am. I think, as threes do, that people love me for what I can produce. Uh, you offered me friendship not just after I knew I couldn't do anything for you, but took something from you. 
And when the dust settled and you walked through those doors, that did more for my salvation and the salvation of my soul than any church service we've ever had. Uh, Matthew Crawford, where are you? Matthew, your family is precious to me. They are dear to me. I just wanted to tell you this. The most important thing I did in my 15 years of pastoring was walk around Baylor's campus for two hours and listen to you to tell me stories about your son. Um, In my own theological journey since, I've never been able to ask a question about the providence of God that was not tempered by the magnitude of his story. So I wanted to say thank you for trusting me to listen and care for his story all these years. It has made a deep impact on me. Kareem Shane. Kareem, uh, there are so many pastors across this country right now who are suffering because there is no place they get to go to be completely themselves. A place to be known in all of their glory and their shame. They're utterly and completely alone, and that loneliness will be the occasion for their demise. Timothy Keller said to be loved, but to not be known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is well, a lot like being loved by God. And you have known me, and you have loved me completely. And so if there is a version of me left standing up here 15 years later, it is because you dared to know and love me just as I am. Uh, I once heard a Christian apologist argue that the reason for the gospel's historical reliability is because of the prominence women have in the initial witness to the resurrection, which, to say more about that, uh, people in the first century didn't care enough about women and their status to give them something like a prominent role in the story. It's an argument, and its form is, of course, the residual tragedy of patriarchy. Uh, But one of the great joys I've had in pastoring here is to testify to its truthfulness. The women of UBC have carried her on their backs. I think of the Kelly Bakers and the Tony Crowders and the, the, uh, the Jen Lakes and the Jamie Dudleys and through the years to the Emily Nances and the Jana Parkers and the Terry Walters and the Melissa Rollins and the Cheryl Luongs and the Lacey McNamee's, my political sparring partner who so often kept my head above water with challenges and perspective and kindness. She taught me how to do that. This place owes so much to women. Um, if there is a reason for me to feel good about leaving now in this moment, Uh, which has been mostly grief, it is because of the competence of women. Jen Karen, our finance chair. Jen, where are you? Hiding, I'm sure. Hates these moments. Okay. Aaron Hill, our our HR chair. Where are you? Right over here. Um, Oh, that most institutions would be so lucky to have your grace and talent that is so freely given. Thank you. Uh, Let me say a word about my leadership chairs, Carrie Fisher. Carrie, where are you? In this church's most critical hour, you shouldered the priestly role of this relationship with me. And the reason you did it so well is because you dared to care about every single person in this community. It is a rare pastoral ability to hold one's conviction and tension with the needs of those who stand across the ideological aisle with you, and you did it seamlessly, and you did it with joy and grace, and that is perhaps the most I have ever asked of a volunteer in my 15 years. Thank you. And now, Kathy Cry. I already bragged on you a few weeks ago 
when I tried to offer an assuring word to UBC about its future, but let me add this. Uh, we all know that you stand in the footsteps of Atlas with the world on your shoulders, and you do it with grace and ease. Um, and so let me say, in addition to, to what I've said about your leadership ability and your organizational ability, this. You are good. And you are kind. And if I can add one more word, please know that I've picked it carefully. You are anointed to lead people. There's very few people that I have trusted as deeply as I have trusted you. Your presence has allowed me to walk away in peace, and that is an immense gift. And now I've run into the danger of this. It reminds me of the author of Hebrews. When um, she is recounting the Hall of Fame, she becomes frantic in verse 32 when she says, And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David or Samuel and the prophets, and I don't have time. I don't have time to say, Jim Ren, where are you? There are so many Sundays. Jim, I saw you walk in the door. Yeah, you're bashful too, but I got you. Uh, there are so many Sundays when I put myself on the precipice and square of doubt that I couldn't do this, and for some reason I saw you get out of that car, and it gave me energy to keep going. Thank you. Doug McNamee and Ross Van Dyke uh, took me on trips and reminded me I was human, Doug and Ross, Doug promised me he'd watch this later. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't hang with you guys in Vegas. I, um, I have six kids, and midnight at a mountain time hour was just too much, but I had fun, I promise. And then there's the roll call of the, the rare people who did this with me for all 15 years, some of which I have mentioned, Jeremy and Emily Nance, Britton, Holly Duke, Betsy Bracken, Mike and Kristen Dotson, John and Kristen Davis, Jack and Janet Parker, to thank one of you, of course, is an invitation to open up Pan Pandora's box, which I will do and spend the rest of my life opening and being grateful for. But now I just have a few moments left. Uh, I was a pastor's kid, so I had a free 18-year internship. Um, and so I'd like to say a word to my dad, my late father, who taught me how to do this. Dad, thank you for teaching me that winning wasn't the most important thing. Thank you for showing me to how to have a non-anxious presence. Thank you for reminding me that people are your treasures. Thanking, thank you for showing me that love endures all things. Thank you for teaching me to recognize the pain in others and to sit with it. And thank you for teaching me how to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit so that when I did those things, I knew I was never alone in any of it. Uh, there is a kind of trope that exists about evangelicalism and pastor's children. They are the rebellious wounded who take their religious expectations placed on them by congregations and live into the trauma through the destructive life choices they make. And while I had fantastic parents, it was a small congregation. And so some of that was inescapable in my own life. And I don't share that to elicit sympathy, but rather to establish my qualification for the following statement. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for never asking my children and my wife to do a job that they weren't hired to do. Um, they, that they moved in and out of this community with as much freedom as any of you made for an occasion for their own joy and formation. And like all of you, they got to be UBCers on their own terms. And because of this, this community can and should take great pride in the way you have treated my family. But now to my children, the four themes of Advent that God has given me. I say this to you. Roy, how prudent, 
How providential that you who sat with us in the car seat on that table that day celebrate your 15th birthday today. Um, you are the one who has done all of this with us. You are the presence of peace in our lives. Uh, let me name the moment when I encountered that most vividly. It was the beginning of the pandemic. Your mother and I had our worst fight we've had in 16 years, the kind of fight that catches the attention of our neighbors. Uh, we were, like so many, trying to make sense of our scrambled and broken lives. And when that fight was over, I went all the way up to the stairs and found you on the top. And um, through broken tears, you were, you were weeping, and you said, you know, you lamented, I hate when the two of you fight. And as painful as it was to witness my own brokenness in your compassion, I saw what I have always seen in you which is the mercy of Christ. And that is too much really for any one child to carry, but you carry it. In gifting you with compassion and peace, God has called you to hard things. And I'm sorry for that difficulty, but I'm not sorry because in those hard things is hidden more meaning than you can imagine. Lillian, my fierce lover, the one who finds the least of these in a room and offers them dignity without effort, the one who makes friends with everyone wherever she goes, the one who trades in the emotions and volatility matched only by a pregnant bobcat. <laughs> I will tell you the most Lillian story. Uh, we have had, do have chickens. In our first batch we got were six barred rocks and their demise came in phases. The first was that a, a city slicking coyote allegedly took four of them. I read the neighborhood app and got the details. Um, <laughs> The, the fifth one died one day when it was 112 in a Waco summer, and um, that left one lone chicken. And, and what does one do in response to that kind of solidarity? Well, Lillian, upon learning that the fifth chicken had died, went out and immediately scooped up that last chicken, and she held that chicken and cried. She feared for the chicken's loneliness. And that story is endearing, but it also is indicative of your heart. And oh, Lillian, your heart, your love, will cost you everything. And that cost will be the source of your salvation. Mabel, hope deferred makes the heart sick and hope does not disappoint. And if that conflicting description hasn't been the story of your life, well, maybe Wednesday Adams will tell us someday. <laughs> but in the meantime, I remain mystified by your proximity and comfort to darkness. But as my mentor, Barbara Brown Taylor, told me a few years back, darkness is where the salvation of the world happened on Good Friday. You have been a steady stream of surprise in my life in a way um, I couldn't have imagined. You're more and more like your mother all the way down to the compassion you express for our foster kids. It is no surprise to me that Edwin begins in hope because you are always the most comfortable of the four of you in the darkness. You are the most whimsical of my children and I love you for it. Wendell, do you have your own TV show yet? Uh, really, I'm waiting because every time you speak, I, I, I feel like there's got to be like a live TikTok channel in our house somewhere that somebody's recording because what seven-year-old says the crap you say? Uh, and you get your own colored candle in, in Advent, right? That's prudent, right? Pink, noticeable, flamboyant, tantalizing. And um, I'd apologize to you too for what's hard about life, but the truth is you'll skate by all of the hard with your charm. And it will piss off everybody, including your siblings. 
How come Wendell steps in manure and comes out smelling like rose? I don't know. And I have pondered the theological calculus of the cosmos that goes into the biblical archetype of the younger brother. That's me too. And the only thing I can tell you is this, that you are a living symbol of the grace and to whom much is given, much is expected. So please, in every way that I made the mistake of being arrogant, do even better and be curious. That is your gift and your insatiable source of joy. And finally, that leaves one person. The one who believed I would pastor when I did not. The one who, unbeknownst to me, prayed on that August 5th, 2007, God, if there is any way this can work out, please be with him. The one who, on more nights than is probably fair, raised four children by herself because I was at a finance meeting or fighting for a marriage or fixing a broken toilet. The one who didn't just know about my brokenness but lived alongside and loved me anyway. The one who refused to let me quit this job the four or five times I tried and finally did let me quit when the time was right. (laughs) The one who has been the clearest expression of the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life. The one who has loved me without qualification. And the one for these 15 years who has pastored the pastor. How do you say thank you to the person who holds your life in their hands and has, said, has done so, so gently for 15 years? How do you reckon with the vivid realization that I live completely surrendered and dependent upon you? You are the delight of my life, and I could not have done these last 15 years without you. And now I will say the last thing. I borrow from the German Renaissance painter Matthias Grunewald. Grunewald's painting, among other things, has painted, among other things, the Isenheim altarpiece. Um, And I'm going to skip over the history because I've been way too long already today and you have been so gracious and patient, but let me get to the punchline, which is this. Uh, Do you see the figure on the right who's pointing at Jesus? That's John the Baptist, and and maybe this is the reason for his befuddling and prolific presence in all four Gospels. Uh, The theologian Karl Barth has made much of this painting. And, and uh, what he has made much of, it can be boiled down to one thing, which is this finger that points to Jesus. And Bart, who wrote just shy of 9,000 pages of Christian theology and a 12-volume work called The Dogmatics, uh, summed all of that work up in this finger when he said that ta- the task of Christian theology is to point to Jesus. And if I can express a concluding word, it is this. In 15 years of getting the absolute joy of blessing and admonishing and teaching and hoping. I pray and I hope that that all has been in service to this finger which points to Jesus. Because without Jesus, none of this means anything. Therefore, my beloved, my longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, stand fast. I was giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. I love you. I have loved getting to love you. Now to him who is able to do far more and abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power that is work within us, to him be the glory to the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.